Welcome to another inspiring message from John Cameron, Senior Pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will encourage, inspire and empower you. Well, let's start reading this morning in the book of John, chapter 1 and verse 35. The next day, Jesus was there again with two of His disciples. When He saw John, sorry, saw Jesus passing by, He said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard Him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and He asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, He replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where He was staying and they spent that day with Him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the first, one of the two who heard about what John, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And they brought him to Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn with me to one more passage of Scripture this morning. And that's in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. The book of Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to start reading this morning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered with feet, their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the, from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then the voice of the Lord, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Then he said, Go and tell this people. We read an amazing passage of Scripture this morning, our second reading from the book of Isaiah, one of my favourite passages of Scripture, about a moment in this prophet's life that literally ruined him for the life that he had been living and oriented his life in an entirely new direction, which is amazing to think because before this moment that is recorded in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was already a prophet. When our reading it takes place when this moment occurred in his life. He is literally standing in the temple next to the king in the office of the prophet of the nation of Israel. The Bible tells us while he is standing there in the temple next to the king on the Sabbath day in the middle of worship that he sees the Lord. When he sees the Lord, he sees not only the Lord, but seraphim, these celestial beings that surround the throne of the Lord, covered in, in eyes that have six wings and sing to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the Bible tells us that Isaiah the prophet, having this incredible moment with God, this encounter with God, 
is awakened to something that he never realised before, a greatness in God, a holiness in God that he'd never quite really understood in his life prior to this moment. From this moment, his life was entirely changed. He, he is confounded, undone. He has an encounter with God and that moment revolutionised his life. It's amazing when you read this passage of Scripture this morning and you realise that it gets to a point where the angel has touched his lips and declared him clean and his sin atoned for. And I don't know about you, but I am grateful for the God who will touch my life and make me clean and atone for my sin. Is anybody grateful for that holy God? when we couldn't do it and couldn't purchase it, who made a way for us where there was no way. And Isaiah encounters that God out of this incredible moment of both a, a conviction and an awakening, an encounter. In, in the afterglow of this incredible moment, standing there, walking in the atonement of Christ, the Bible tells us that He hears the Trinity having a conversation amongst themselves and they are saying to one another in their unity and in their diversity, whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah answers this question out of an encounter that lifted him towards heaven. An encounter always does that. And this was the topic of our sermon last week, that when you have an encounter with God, it lifts you towards heaven and you begin to live your life, not out of a dead religion or out of a just a, a, a kind of a, a, an empty and vain kind of belief and a set of books and laws and being able to say hallelujah or amen or in our church, yeah or wow at an appropriate moment in a sermon or maybe to lift our hands and worship or to greet one another at the door with bless you brother or something like that. But when you have an encounter with God, you begin to live your life with a sense of both surrender and of calling. Yeah. That an encounter lifts you upward toward God. Yeah. Out of his encounter, he hears this conversation and the response of Isaiah's heart to God is here I am, send me. In other words, out of an encounter comes a willingness to be led by God. So what leading does God have for Isaiah's life? What leading does God have for our lives? And we find that the answer to that question comes in the response of heaven when God simply says to Isaiah, go and tell these people. Go and tell these people. An encounter lifted him upward. And then the voice of heaven or the response of having heaven in his life was to pull Isaiah outward. I don't know what he saw his life like as a prophet before that moment. I don't know what he thought his job was to be fanciful, to have the appropriate word, to be able to stand there in pomp and ceremony and be someone who had a gift of prophecy. But from this moment forward, Isaiah began to understand that his role was not to be someone who was positioned in an office, but to be someone who was connected with the lives of other people. And last week we looked at this thought of encounter, but this week we move from encounter to community. Because if a life is genuinely connected upward to God, then the response of having God in your life will always be to pull you outward to be more included, more involved and more concerned in the lives of other people. Yes. 
It's always going to be the way. Can somebody say yes to that? I became a Christian at the age of 18 years old. I got saved out of the world and you've heard the story. I had a mullet. I drove an HQ Holden. I mean, I got radically saved, you know. I mean, my hair now, Sasha, when every time I go to get my hair cut at her amazing salon, you know, she cuts with the, the normal scissors, you know, for about three minutes and then the thinning scissors for about the next 15 minutes as this great mop is, is kind of thinned out. Praise the Lord, it puts me in good stead for my 60s. But, you know, she has to thin this grand mop out just to get it to a, a form where it can be, you know, transformed into the stylish stud muffin you see standing in front of you today. But... You know, to get saved out of the world before I understood that there was such a thing as thinning scissors, you know, that look like teeth with gaps. You know, before I ever understood that, I had a mullet that was kind of like a cross between an afro and a mullet. I like to call it the frullet, you know, and uh, it kind of just didn't go, just go down. It kind of went out as well. And, and there aren't many photos of that era. If you ever find one, Jonathan Fletch has probably got one, but I, I, I command you as your pastor to never let those see the light of day. But... Uh, I don't think that will have any impact on Jonathan, absolutely at all. But I'm also praying for God's grace at the same time. Got saved out of the world and I was a good Christian. But at the age of 19, I went to a conference where Winky Pratney preached for six days on the topic of revival. And I got more than just saved. I had what Isaiah had. I had a moment where I knew God was real, that He was powerful, majestic, that He wasn't just the God who wanted my bottom on a seat on a Sunday service. And of course He wants me in His house. And of course He wants me in His presence. But a God who is real, a God who had a personality, a God who could be discovered and worshipped and adored, not just in a, in a corporate sense or in a, an exercised sense, but in a knowing sense. A God, a God who wooed me, a God who was close and personal. And I had an encounter with God. Out of that moment, my life was totally changed. I, was, I, I started, you know, praying two hours a day, reading my Bible two hours a day, memorizing verses and chapters and books of the Bible, devoured preaching tapes and, you know, spent hours in prayer. I wanted God. I wanted revival. I wanted, I wanted to know Jesus in a real and a personal way. I wanted His presence to fill my life, my thoughts, my car, my room. You know, I remember praying in the winter with all the blankets over my head because mum and dad wouldn't allow a heater in a bedroom. That was a, a waste of money. My dad's Scottish, you know, and uh, literally. And so, you know, we'll, I'm praying in my lounge room at four o'clock in the morning and I just wanted more of God. I'll never forget that season of my life because in those moments of prayer and worship and really trying to just focus on Jesus, make Him my adoration, to woo His presence, to try and somehow become familiar in the good sense with this God who was so powerful and was moving in my life. Uh, every time I prayed, I, I would see two scenes. I would see firstly, a shopping mall. I mean, if I was busy rebuking the devil. I mean, you know, what is this? Is God highlighting for me the spirit of mammon? Surely God doesn't want me to go shopping, you know? But I just kept seeing the same scene of a shopping mall. I just kept seeing it, a shopping mall. And it was filled with people and I just kept seeing the shopping mall. And then the, sex, the next scene, that was an amazing slip, wasn't it? <laughs> when you say next and scene and you kind of jumble them, wow. Let's make sure that doesn't make a podcast. Or a service recording for that matter, because those suckers have a way of getting passed around too. The next scene 
Remember that I'm 19 years old at the time and the next scene that I saw was of high schools. Halls filled with young people, teenagers, all the stuff that they bring to it. And time after time, week after week, and literally for months, I just kept seeing shopping malls and high schools. And it wasn't for a long time that I began to realize because I was still trying to figure this God out, figure His voice out, work out how to have a conversation with Him. And I began to realize that the God of all creation was not just touching my lips and atoning for my sin, but was commanding me, sending me and saying, go and tell these people. And it's been my experience, church, that anybody who is genuinely connected to God, if their faith is real, if their walk with God is alive, then the natural outflow of an encounter with God will come an increasing concern and passion for the lives of other people in their world. Man, out of that, I started, I started the beginning of the next year an outreach into shopping malls. From that came a journey that eventually led me to write my own gospel tracks. Came from that an understanding of an evangelism. From that, I ceased training evangelism and began my journey as a pastor because I believe that a soul winning church is the only way to win a lost generation. It's just my firm belief. Outreach into high schools led me to a decade of youth ministry and still a church. Now today with thousands of teenagers that are part of it. And at the end of the day, when God touched my life, and an encounter with Him took place, then the outward pull was always to be about the lives of other people. And I'm so blessed that Daniel, I think just under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has reminded us of a maxim that has always been in a rise from day one through to today. And really he's saying, as I leave, don't ever forget this because it's always been part of the reason why it's moved forward. And it's the only way that it will move forward is that we build the church one person at a time. Yeah, come on, come on. That at the end of the day, it is never about crowds and church is never about that. Now listen, I believe God does want us to fill not just that balcony, but this one. Because there's 90 seats in that balcony that right now might be on drugs and getting, uh, trying to recover this morning. And some, somebody's thinking about walking away from a marriage. And there's somebody who's thinking that their job is not worth, you know, that they're worth nothing. And there's somebody up there who doesn't think they could ever have a tomorrow. And we gotta win every single one person for Jesus and fill it and fill it again and fill it again and fill it again because it is about people. And an awakening to Christ has an impact. We didn't let you know this last week because we wanted you just to get head start. But now we're letting you know that the moment you do go after an encounter with God, He's gonna want something from us. I always get concerned when I meet Christians who say, well, you know, I really love prayer, but I don't like people. I'm just like, let's roll that back, back. Let's play that tape again. So the God you're praying to sent His Son to die on a cross. Can you tell me again why? That's right, for people. So you like to pray to Him, but don't like the people He died for. Let's back it up a little bit more and ask a really pertinent question. Which God are you praying to? Because it's always been my experience and I reckon the experience of thousands of people in this room and others this morning, that when you become a worshiper of Jesus as a natural result, you become more concerned with the people that are in your world. 
An encounter awakens a passion for community. In our next passage of Scripture that we read from this morning in John chapter one is an amazing moment. The first two ever followers of Jesus. The Bible tells us that John the Baptist, who has just proclaimed that Jesus the day before is in fact the Lamb of God, the Messiah. The next day is standing there again with two of His disciples. Now, John the Baptist, you really gotta think about how amazing this guy is, that he's willing to thrust Jesus into the limelight and lose kudos as a result. And here are these two disciples standing with him and he literally says to them, boys, check him out because he is the Lamb of God. He is the one I have been telling you about. And for the first time in the history of the world, two men became followers of Jesus as they followed Jesus down the road. Now you and I in this room, if you believe that you are a Christian, if you're not, you're in the right place and welcome here today. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then we need to take note from the journey of these two men because they are the first first example of a follower of Jesus in the history of the world. And here we have these two followers of Jesus and the Bible tells us that Jesus is walking down the street and He turns around to discover He's got stalkers. Can you imagine it? You know, it's kind of an awkward moment when you're just kind of walking down the street by yourself, turn around and see, you've ever had this? Then you kind of get a couple of blocks on or maybe for Jesus who weren't city blocks, so maybe a couple of mountains and valleys and He kind of turns around and still behind Him, a little bit nervous to approach Him, but following there behind Him is these two disciples previously of John. And Jesus asks them a really crazy question. He says, what do you want? Now, I don't know, but if if you were a disciple of John the Baptist and John the Baptist has just said, man, you've seen what we've done, boys. You've seen our team, but check out this guy because what he's about to do, his sandals, I'm not even worthy to tie them up. I baptise with water, but he's gonna baptise with fire. What do you think that they're gonna ask and answer to that open-ended question? What is it that you want? You can have anything. Jesus is just saying, what do you want? I mean, I would be like, you know, how about a healing? Can you fly? You know, um, you know, uh, uh, a limitless supply of peanut M&Ms. I mean, you know, uh, wisdom. You know, you got greater wisdom than Solomon. You know, could you give me some wisdom? Download some of that. Make me like, you know, Neo in the Matrix and I just know it all, you know. Can you, can you just give me some of that? You know, what, do you, what is it that you want? It's amazing because church, we gotta remember that really when anyone becomes a follower of Jesus, I reckon the same question that these men asked of Jesus, every new follower asks. They're new to it. They don't understand it yet. Haven't got the P's and Q's. Can't say hallelujah. They stub their toe and still coming out with something that starts with S and N's and T. And here they are with Jesus and he asks, what do you want? And their answer, Lord, where do you stay? Their answer isn't profound. It doesn't, no, it's not like anyone's sitting there going, wow. <laughs> their answer is simply, if you are God, then is it possible to have a relationship with you? Wow. Not just that, but really in here, we see something that's in the heart of every person who's 
being called into a relationship with Jesus. And the first thing that we want, that we need, is to know that as believers, there is a place where you can get together, a place where you can hang out. Jesus has asked the question, Lord, where do you stay? And His answer is just come with me and I will show you. And then the Bible says, and it depends which translation you're reading from, but in some translations it says that it was only 10 o'clock in the morning and they spent the rest of that day with Jesus. So in other words, firstly, their passion was just to know where Jesus lived, to have access to His life. They're saying, can we hang out? Can we have a bit of what we like to call around here community? Can we do lunch? Can we have supper? Can we hang in your lounge room? Can our kids play on your yard? Can we just learn how you do life? I mean, do you party, Jesus? Do you, do you know, do you, do you like jokes, Jesus? I mean, you know, do you eat meat? Really serious, do you eat pork? You know, it's, it's like, it's like well, you know, what, what's life like for you? What is life like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And at the end of the day, none of us are Jesus in this room. Thank God for that. I'm disappointed if we are. But at the end of the day, every new follower of Jesus is asking the same thing of those who are along the journey. They're asking, where do you stay? What is your life like? What's it like to be a follower of Jesus? And at the end of the day, the heart of God for us, church, is that our lives will be awakened to Christ in an encounter and then connected with others in community. Come on, it's His heart. It's His passion for us. And Jesus was willing to spend a day with these guys. He had time for people. He made time for people. Three and a half years later, He's gone. Yet He took a day for two men. And notice that because he took a day, the next day, Andrew, one of those guys, goes out and gets his brother. You know him. His name is now Peter, was originally Simon in our reading today, became the lead apostle in the early church, the guy who preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls got saved in a single calendar day. A very important figure because when you discover Jesus in relationship, in community, then you begin to have an impact on the lives of other people around you as well. And who knows? what's on the other side of our extension of embrace. That's why I believe that God wants every believer in community and bringing others into community. Because it's about the increasing flow of God's plan in the life of other believers. Other people who are yet to be one for Christ. And I believe with all my heart that it is the absolute heartbeat of God that we would live our lives as believers not only out of an encounter, but in community. Doing life with others. You know, when, when Arise first began, um, I used to get up every Sunday morning at, at 6 a.m. and myself and Jeff Stanway down the front row, we would go down to the Tafaya Dance and Drama Centre. We were meeting in a room that we now like to call Drama 2. At the time, it had fluorescent yellow walls. If you've ever seen the cover of my book, uh, Momentum, the, the yellow on the front is a colour match to the colour of the walls. 
And so we wanted to give people a picture of, you know, where this church began and what humble origins. And really, you have no greater indicator of the humble origins of Arise Church than to know that it was me who was in charge of putting the sound system together in the early days. And today I wouldn't even know how to plug the cables in, but I can still coil a cable though, over, under, over, under, and make sure there's no bends in it. I, I know what I'm doing, Andy, you can trust me. But, but you know, back in those early days and Gillian would get up at the same time and she would put on our crock pot and uh, put in a whole bunch of chicken. You know, a crock pot slow cooker if you're from overseas and had this big tub and she'd put in chicken or beef or lamb or whatever it was into that slow cooker and all the, the herbs and the spices. You get about the big rice cooker and fill it up with rice and we wander around church just going, hey, do you wanna come to our place for lunch today? Do you wanna come to our place for lunch today? Do you wanna come to our place for lunch today? You know, and, and you know, we basically invite the entire congregation back to our place for lunch unless they look like they're about to kill somebody and then they might not, might not make the invite list. But you know, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, but we'd basically invite the entire church back to our place for lunch, and everyone would come over, and they'd bring bread, and they'd bring Boston buns, and you know all the stuff, and Sally Lunds, and just stuff, and we would just party for hours. I mean, people would be there for so long. I'd go upstairs, have a little nap for twenty or thirty minutes, because t- preaching is, is tiring work. Sit up and back down is probably more tiring, but you know, then we. Then we'd come back downstairs and they'd still all be there. They'd just think I went to the bathroom, didn't realise I'd gone. Had a little nine o felt a whole lot better, you know. It's before I started drinking coffee, before Nick Ballara began to impact my life. But, you know, it was just, just such a fun stage in our church's journey. And then, of course, it got too big. Today, if we invited you all to our place for lunch, I think my neighbours would put together a petition to get us booted out of the neighbourhood. But, you know, we, we, we just did life together. And then it, then it moved to Tulsi on, on Cuba Street. You know, you remember those days? Butter chicken for lunch, $7 for, you know, curry, rice and butter chicken. A lot of butter, just a little bit of chicken, but you know, it was good. <laughs> Naan bread, you know, we'd be there dipping it in and eating it. It was great too. No night service. So let's get those carbs rolling, baby. <laughs> I don't care. Carve me to sleep, you know. And then, of course, we started the first ever life group in the history of Arise and Jillian and I had it and we wanted it to be for the serious Christians only. So I know Stefan and Kerry will remember, but it was at our house in Wadestown at the time, 72 stairs to our front doorway. We put at the bottom of it a little plaque that said, who may ascend to the Lord's holy mountain? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and a fit chest, you know, and people would climb up 72 stairs. There used to be a cable car, but that was long broken, you know, and so everyone would climb up, they'd get there wide awake, even if they had a busy day at the office and the first life group was in our home. Then of course it reached a point where that couldn't fit in our home anymore and we needed more than one. And so from there it's evolved and it's grown. And at the start of this year, as of this week, 219 life groups in three different cities, four different campuses, (laughs) believing together to do something amazing for Jesus. Yeah, give the Lord some praise. But you know, at the end of the day, the, the vehicle has to morph as the church goes through ages and stages, but the heartbeat can never change. And the heartbeat is community, connectedness, doing life with other believers in a meaningful community of faith, making a difference in the lives of others. 
you know, first of all, all the life groups were on a Wednesday. Then some people couldn't make that once a fortnight. So we moved some to a Tuesday. Then we moved some women's groups to the morning, some men's groups to breakfast. This year, it's like wide open. Now it's, you know, gone from a lounge room on a Sunday to a Tulsi restaurant, to a life group, to hundreds of life groups, to then multiple days, to then to diversity. This year, we're adding in different interest groups So now you can have a life group that revolves around a sporting interest. We're gonna have life groups that teach courses so that you can come along for 10 weeks and just, you know, go through freedom in Christ or valiant man or living by the Spirit and grow in your faith in that way. But at the end of the day, and you can be part of more than one life group, turn up to as many as you want. But we're saying that as we step out into this next 10 years of Arise, it's not just about people who are having an encounter. We must grow together as a community of believers. As we fill more balcony bays, as we start more campuses, as we reach a nation, Jesus, we grow bigger and smaller all at the same time. A commitment to reaching more people for Jesus. And church, I truly believe that it is the heartbeat of God that every believer would live their lives in community. It's what God wants from us. It's His desire for us. Because at the end of the day, a communal faith is one that truly has an impact in the lives of other believers. And my encouragement, my exhortation to every person in this room is to live our lives out of an encounter with Jesus and in community with other believers. To be knit together, to do life together. Start being concerned about a one other than me. Bring that person into my world, into my life, into my lounge room. And together we can do something great for God in our lives. Proverbs 18.1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. So in other words, Christianity in isolation is spoken of against clearly in the Scriptures. And for you and I, as we set off on this, bo- this br- brave new journey into the next stage of Arise Church, I truly believe that God wants our church family to grow in its ability to be connected in community and our vehicle for community is life groups, to live our lives with other believers. Let me give you some points this morning. Number one, discipleship is relational. There's nothing in the Bible that ever separates instruction from connection. We like to think of it that way as modern day believers. In fact, you know, sometimes in the life of our church, you know, you get the, the, what I like to call the CV Christian. And it's not to in any way discredit people who have experience or capacity who are joining our church. But you know, there, there's a certain type of thing that can rise up in the life of a believer that says, well, this is me and this is what I've done. And joining a rise is really not a job interview. It's an entrance into a community of believers. And there's like this kind of thought that somehow because of the CV or the, the, the profile that, that we would then create an opportunity for that person to give instruction in the Word. But you know, there's not one page of the Scripture that ever separates connection and instruction. Elisha washed the hands of Elijah. Paul called Timothy his son. All the way through the Scripture, there has always been a joining between connection and instruction. And discipleship is never devoid of relationship. 
And as we seek to disciple a generation into Christ, it's not about classes, it's about relations. It's about people getting to know one another, walking together, seeing life with one another. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, whatever you have seen in me, whatever you have heard in me, whatever you have experienced of me, put these things into practice. And I'm telling you, the most powerful thing that we can ever do is be connected to other believers. Because when we're living our life in community, it gives us, and you have no idea, you know who the frontline troops are, the most highly valued people in a rise church are? The life group leaders of this church. I want you to put your hands together and give a massive round of applause to every life group believer. Come on. Champions, heroes, servants of Christ, mansions in heaven. I'm telling you what. Do you know what I do in this pulpit this morning? I have no reward for it in eternity. None. Because the Bible says that the Lord rewards what is done in private. So your thank you in the foyer is my thanks, my reward for doing this. But when a life group leader visits someone in hospital, when they decide to have that couple who are struggling with their marriage around to their home for a meal, when somebody says, I'm gonna open up my life, my lounge room, I'm gonna share, I, I'm not there yet on my Christian journey, but I'm a little way down the track and there's a lot of people who I can just share with about what I've already learned on this journey. And as we go on this journey of faith together, they are the real heroes, the real champions and the ones that will get a reward in heaven for what nobody ever knew they did. And so one more time, clap every life group leader in our church. They are absolutely the champions. Yeah. We love you and we applaud you. And God has got a plan that we would live our lives in community with other believers. It's an amazing thing to notice that it, is, it requires relationship to bring the change that is needed. That's why Jesus had 12 disciples who became the apostles. And the Bible says that He gathered the 12 to Him for the purpose that they might be with Him and that He might send them out. Be with Him and send them out. Because at the end of the day, you are discipled through relationship. I don't know if you've ever read the passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35, when the Bible says that Jesus is entering Jericho on His way to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, that you would know that the last city before Jerusalem is Jericho. So Jesus is on His last stop before He gets to Jericho, when He gets, sorry, Jerusalem. When He gets to Jerusalem, that is when people grab palm branches and throw them on the road. The children sing Hosanna. He clears the temple, gets arrested that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, crucified the next day, risen from the grave. Three days after that, Jesus is a guy on a mission. And the Bible tells us that as He's coming up towards the city, on the final approach that there is a blind man, a beggar, we suppose that it's blind Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road who is shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The Bible says Jesus has already walked past him, but he stops. Something in the faith of this man called to Jesus. Jesus brings the man before him and says, what is it that you want? The man says that I might receive my sight. And as he asked, so he got. 
And Jesus healed him and blind Bartimaeus was cured. And the Bible says that immediately Jesus began to, blind Bartimaeus began to follow Jesus down the road. You can only follow Jesus immediately if immediately Jesus keeps walking. So he has his moment and then Jesus just carries on. And then the Bible says that he enters, Luke chapter 19, verse one, he entered Jericho, right? Final approach, enters the city. And as he's walking down the main road, people everywhere, a short tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus climbs up a tree, sees Jesus walking past and thinks, I wanna get a look at this guy. Jesus notices Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today not pass you by, not give you a little prayer and walk on. But to a man who needed a miracle, Jesus gave ministry. But to a person who needed discipleship, Jesus gave intimacy. And a tax collector who robbed the Jews for the Romans became a person who instead brought blessing back to the city where he was and fame to the name of Christ as his life was turned around because he got to spend a day with Jesus. Jesus who's walking to Jerusalem for his death crucifixion, resurrection. And my friends, I want you to know that we learn from Jesus's life, from His example, that discipleship is about relationship. Number two, the second thing I wanna highlight for us this morning is that faith is relational. If we're gonna grow this thing called the church and do something amazing, people regularly in our church will send me a text message and you know, not like my prayers are in any way special. They're not, but they'll send me a text message and say, could you join with me praying for this thing? Well, the Bible says in Matthew 18 verse 19, that uh, again, I tell you that if two or three of you on earth will agree about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And I've seen it thousands of times and many people in this room would say the same, that when a life group gathers together and says, man, we're gonna agree together for that, for that teenage son who's not walking with the Lord, for that need in this body, for a job for this person. And then it comes out three weeks later in a praise report on a Sunday morning that at life group, we believe for X, Y, Z. And now God has answered that which we asked of Him. Man, it's all the way through the Scriptures. Two or three of you agree. Go and pray for the person when they're sick. Touch it, it'll be done. And there's an element to our faith that God blesses relationship. He blesses community and faith is relational. Number three, truth is nurtured relationally. Um, I know as believers, we'd like to think sometimes that, that, that truth is just about what we declare from a pulpit or what we read in a book. And it is obviously the truth of God's Word, absolute rule of the law, rule of the world, every single verse of the, the Bible inspired by God, my absolute rule of law in my life. But you know something? We live in a, in a world that rejects the very notion of absolute truth. And for us to disciple a generation today is about discovering the fact that people learn truth through relationship. So if we're gonna have the impact in this world that we want to have, then we must embrace the fact that truth is discovered through relationship. Jesus said, John 5, verse 39, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are they which testify, these are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Relationship. 
And at the end of the day, if we are gonna grow in our knowledge of the Lord, then his requirement of us is always gonna be to include more people in our lives. And there's zero escape from that. Here's number four. Wholeness is relational. I wanna save this one for last. Wholeness in a person's life is relational. You know, one of the things I love the most about church, it may be the thing I love the most about church is to watch dysfunction become function. To watch a person walk in the doors of our church and because maybe of their background or their life experiences or their abuse or whatever it is, just the, 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 you know, the things that they're bringing to the Lord, we all come with our own dysfunction. If you don't think you've got any, you've probably got the most. You know, and we, <laughs> you know, and we come to the Lord with all of the mixture and the baggage of that which we are, but we enter a community of believers where our lives are constantly being challenged to align with the truth of God's Word. And as a result of that, we grow in our wholeness. And you don't have to go too far. I mean, the guy was around at my house the other day doing some work on it, begins to talk to me about his, his son, the issues in his life. And then he just goes, do you have anything at your church that could help? I said, of course we do. We've got, you know, we've got sporting teams. You know, it doesn't even have to be about a Christian activity. You can find some, some good friends that way. Because you know what? If a guy or a girl is addicted to drugs, what they need more than prayer for deliverance is a bunch of friends who aren't addicted to drugs. And a community of faith is actually an incredibly powerful tool to lift people out of dysfunction and to put them to a place where they find function. They get a new role model, a new example, new heroes, new testimonies, and all of that is inspired by the Word of God that is beneath all of it. And as our lives are connected with others, that's where we can make the biggest difference. I've always said, and I'll always say, that I think my best work has always been done in our lounge room. This is a fickle thing I do with you this morning. I mean, some days you walk out, out of, off this pulpit going, I, I am God's man of faith and power for the hour. Other times you walk out going, oh man. But you know, when you touch a life personally, it's a great and rewarding experience to see something come into a person's life. And the best thing we could ever do is just allow people who've been messed up. Can you break a generational habit in a family? Of course you can. Can you turn around you know, things that have been there? Can you, can you cause poverty to go in a generation? Can you see cycles of dependency break? Can you, can you see a person get back up on their feet again? And can they move forward? And the answer is yes, because when you surround people with community, you surround dysfunction with function and it just isolates the disease and brings the cure and God can touch a person's life. And who knows what God's got for that person the days that are to come. If you would like to find out more about Arise Church and John Cameron, go to arise.org.nz or follow them on Twitter at John Allen Cameron and at Arise Church.